Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner, Academy Travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers Week, the odd restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. In this week's ABR podcast, Marilyn Lake reviews My Grandfather's Clock, Four Centuries of a British-Australian Family by historian Graham Davison. All of us probably know of a bad family history, or at least one which is unable to transcend the interest of descendants. Lake explains that Davison's book is not that, that it is in fact an uncommonly good family history, in part because of the broader story it tells. Marilyn Lake is our Honorary Professorial Fellow in History at the University of Melbourne and the author of many books, including most recently, Progressive New World. Here she is with The Ancestors, an Uncommonly Good Family History, published in the November issue of ABR. My name is Marilyn Lake, and I'm reviewing Graham Davison's new family history. With my grandfather's clock, four centuries of a British-Australian family, historian Graham Davison has offered his readers and bequeathed to his grandchildren a very special book. At once genealogy, travel log, memoir broad social history, and a meditation on the sources of personal identity. It's a book to be treasured. The Pursuit of Ancestry is a narrative quest, aided by family memory, private papers, public records, and now an ever-expanding archive of digital sources and online data sets, as well as DNA testing. But as sociologist Eviatar Zerubavel has noted, Rather than simply passively documenting who our ancestors were, genealogies are the narratives we construct to actually make them our ancestors. Davison's quest takes him way back to the wild Scottish-English border country of the 17th century, where he finds unlikely but not unwelcome forebears in the Davidsons, an unruly bunch of reavers, smallholders who were also cattle thieves and sometime murderers. He describes a journey beginning in frontier warfare and dispossession in the Scottish lowlands. But as centuries passed, the Davisons, as they were increasingly known, moved south of the border and transformed over generations into more recognisable family relations. Respectable tradespeople, hand workers, a labour aristocracy that had converted to Methodism, temperance, with a commitment to harmony between masters and men, and self-discipline. There was something uptight as well as upright about the Davisons, 
their best-known descendant, observes Riley. Methodism and migration turned us into the quiet, respectable folk I knew. The methods of genealogy and history are different in many ways. While the one proceeds backwards in time, the other moves forward. But in most kinds of history, there are elements of both. In this beautifully written book, they work together to illuminate the great paradox of history as a mode of inquiry that is simultaneously of the past and the present. Like that 200-year-old grandfather clock of the title, which sets this engaging and peripatetic story in motion. This is a transnational history. The Davisons had moved from the Scottish borders to England. Davison's father, George, migrates to Australia in 1912, aged just one year old. The clock doesn't journey to Australia until later, when Aunt Sissy comes in the midst of the Depression. Towards the end of the book, Davison himself returns to England as a Rhodes Scholar, and it becomes clear to him, although he would, on a later journey, be seized by an attack of nostalgia for a homeland he'd yet to see, it became clear to him that he actually felt little connection to England. He was Australian, and his future lay in the country in which he was born, writing the history of his city. As a historian, Davison has long been interested in clocks and watches and the history and significance of telling time. He cites the English historian David Landy's observation that a common measured time was the foundation of the modern world. Davison's book, The Unforgiving Minute, published in 1993, documented the history of time-telling in Australia. He's also been interested in museums and material culture. The tall clock, now in Davison's Melbourne home, features in this history as many things. Mechanical wonder, family heirloom, object of desire, talisman, repository of wisdom, and alibi for a search for personal identity. It demanded to be read, he notes, both as history and heritage, for its meanings in history and for me. There was a family legend told by Uncle Frank that when he visited Grandfather Thomas in Birmingham in 1929, the clock had struck. Listen, the old man had exclaimed, our ancestors. When the Davison family moved from Annan to the garrison city of Carlisle early in the 19th century, they completed a journey that began in East Teviotdale a century before. They were becoming attuned to the values that were beginning to shape everyday life in an industrial city. We know this, writes Davison, the historian of timekeeping, not because of anything they said or wrote, but because of something that the family owned. It was at this time that they probably acquired the grandfather clock from their neighbour, the clockmaker Robert Hodgson. It was a significant purchase for it showed that my ancestors not only wanted to tell the time, says Davison, they also wanted to be up with the times. The Davisons were agents of modernity. In the future, when the clock is inherited by Davison's son, this heirloom will have passed through seven generations. When the Davisons moved from rural life to an industrial metropolis, they left behind the old agricultural cycles of sowing, growing, reaping and droving, and found themselves in a place where factory bells and whistles announced the beginning of the working day. Although as hand workers, whose workplaces often adjoin their living quarters, the Davisons more likely listened for the metallic ding of Robert Hodgson's long case clock. One of the many achievements of this uncommonly good family history is the broader social history it offers. Describing the effects of the Industrial Revolution, 
technological change at the workplace, the sudden redundancy of many skilled workers, such as weavers and block printers, and urban growth. In the hands of a skilled historian, family history can open windows onto wider worlds. In my grandfather's clock, the historian of Marvellous Melbourne pours over maps and other sources to explore the expansion of Carlisle and Birmingham and their industrial suburbs. He joins an old debate about whether industrialisation benefited workers and suggests that William Davidson, born in 1782, growing potatoes and earning 25 shillings a week as a block printer at Cummersdale, was probably better off than his son and grandchildren. Living in poverty, overcrowding and disease at Gate, an industrial suburb of Carlisle. Thomas Davison, William's grandson, was fortunate as a choir boy to be educated at the Cathedral Grammar School. He later moved and found work and new status as a tin plater in Birmingham, the workshop of the world, which made everything from billy cans to bicycles, from guns to electrical generators. He was elected president of the Birmingham Operative Tin Plate Workers Society and supported the movement for parliamentary reform. He became manager of the firm, J.H. Hopkins and Sons, but then his fortunes plunged. In noting the precariousness of life for so many, Davison suggests that both education and emigration offered escapes from poverty. In 1912, Thomas's son John decided to take an assisted passage with his wife Ada and young family voyaging third class on the SS Orestes to Melbourne. The family had also moved from church to chapel, forsaking the Church of England for Methodism. In becoming a Methodist, Davison writes, John was embracing a distinctive culture with its own sense of time and history. Some of that culture would be transmitted to me along with the ancestral clock. Azirabavel has also observed, genealogical narratives don't simply trace a family tree, they also serve to transform these grandfathers and great-grandfathers into one's ancestors. Davison, looking back at them, finds continuities and affinities. Biology is not destiny, but cultural values, he suggests, are passed on. They can also be rejected. I didn't remain a teetotaler for long, he writes. But I'm glad Richard, Thomas's father, took his stand. We might all be back in Caldugate if he hadn't. Listen to the ancestors. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.